Legos. I don't know how other par parents feel about Legos, but uh, I think uh, many of us who have kids are actually pretty fond of Legos. Um, we often get to help build them and whatnot. Um, they, uh, but we, we've had our kids get, a, get rid of a lot of uh, toys throughout the years, um, and uh, yet somehow the Legos always stick around, mainly because dad does not want to let them go. Um, but, you know, they're a really cool toy. We, I'm sure many of us grew up with Legos. Um, some of you in the crowd may not have, but, uh, and we remember being able to build all these amazing things and they're just like an open-ended creative thing. So, uh, so I think a lot of parents think they're really cool. Um, they're also, when used for evil, um, very terrible things. For example, when they're left out and you step on one. Sure, I've heard the groans. We, many people know that experience, the pain, the agony, the questioning of our own existence. Why? Why have I let this happen? And they give extra Legos. You think that's added value, but it's really just added mess all over the house because once you're done with the main set, you have these extra pieces that aren't attached to it, so they end up everywhere. But, uh, yeah, um, most of my sermon this morning is about Legos. But it starts with a little Lego man that was supposed to be part of my illustration that um, got played with this morning and moved off of my material and I forgot about it. Um, and uh, I'm sure somehow this will relate, but uh, see, um, I... I've been asked this question a few times this year, which is, why has, why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? That one tree um, uh, that Vera, Vera read that, the story of uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you weren't supposed to eat of that tree. Why did God put that in the garden? Now, uh, I share with uh, my youth kids this story, or this concept or parable, and that is, let's assume you have a, uh, a bunch of Legos, and you've got your Lego people, and uh, you've, you've created, you've put these things together, and, uh, but these are alive kind of only in your imagination. You can manip manipulate them, put them in scenes, you can make them do all kinds of little things and build a story around them. Uh, but uh, there's, there's something different than a creation with free choice. Now, imagine if you could instead uh, have this uh, little guy, this little Lego person, and, uh, and he was able to walk and talk and do everything on his own, um, how would you establish that this thing can have any ability to love or care about you all at all? 
I mean, when we create our Lego stories, I could tell uh, little Lego man that, well, he loves his creator. But is that really love? This uh, robot act of uh, simply repeating what the creator has to offer. Um, and that's where this tree comes into play. Now, one thing about this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is God created it. And what did God say about all that he created? He said it's good. So it's good that this tree, with the propensity of causing bad for uh, his people, was in that tree. Eve saw the tree and saw that it was good for eating from it. Um, how does she know that? Um, perhaps all the animals of the garden ate from it. Um, that, I mean, they would have eaten similar things. Uh, I think uh, the uh, animals were supposed to eat from the plants and the people were supposed to eat the seeds and the fruit of the tree. Uh, maybe there's distinction there. But, uh, but they were eating the same kinds of foods while in the garden. And these animals were likely eating from this fruit. They weren't commanded not to eat from it. And they were thriving, whatever the case is. But just like the Legos, whereas for good or for evil, all things can be used in that purpose. Anything done outside of God's will isn't good. There are many good things that could be twisted for bad. Sometimes we allow food to do that. Sex is a good thing in the right context. Anything we might possess, we could use that for good, or it could harm. Man saw that tree, and he had a desire for the knowledge that he could gain from it. Can you imagine a single bit of knowledge that God would actually withhold from his creation? They walked and talked with God. I think that desire for knowledge could have been fulfilled through God. But they were tricked into believing that something else could fill that need. And so that very good thing, um, that tree that God created and placed in the garden, was used poorly. Man desired a knowledge that he could gain on his own. But that tree also represented the ability for man to be able to choose to love God. Without that tree there, and without that choice to be able to leave and disobey God, where is man but a robot that simply does 
whatever God created them to do. We're all impacted in different ways by the sin of Adam in the garden. For one man, it was his zealous devotion to the law, his love of the traditions of his forefathers. How can you hold that against someone? But that blinded him to the Lord. And overseeing the stoning of the first martyr, Stephen, you can read his story in Acts 6, Saul sought, Saul sought further ability to do more damage to the church in Damascus. If you would turn in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. Acts chapter 9, 1 through 20. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found anyone who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand to Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come, to, come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord answered Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who, has, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales 
fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. What bravery of this man, Ananias. I don't know what the heading of, uh, of your Bible, I mean, this doesn't make it biblical, but the heading in my Bible uses Saul terrorizes the followers of Jesus. Saul was perhaps the first anti-Christian terrorist. How would we accept such a thing today? I tell you what, as Ananias, trusting in the Lord and experiencing the things he had in his day, I think he had a good amount of faith, knowing that Jesus was going to protect him. I mean, Jesus said he was going to use this terrorist to spread the message of the world, the message of Jesus to the world. Ananias is not the first person that Jesus has called to do these things for. But he did it for us even before he would ask it of us. In Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, 6 through 10, actually. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We were enemies of God. Just like Saul had his issues, um, 
that, while seemingly good, a love for the law, a love for the traditions of Israel, I don't even think that the sins I deal with are as holy and just as those of Saul's. I wish I could say they were honorable, even though misguided. We have lived as enemies of God in the past, every one of us. And God, while we were still enemies, died on the cross for our sins. Luke 6, 27 says, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. God asked Ananias to do nothing that Jesus didn't do himself. If we are to be one with Christ, we should do the same. This isn't some trick to get people to like us. It's not some system that works out to peaceful comfort of all adherents. I share with you a system called faithful obedience. The faithful obedience of followers of the way, as the church was called back in Acts. The faithful obedience of a group of less than 20, who became a few hundred, who became millions. Jesus asks you to love your enemies, not to pick a fight. This is no persecution complex. This is a simple, straightforward love, the same way Christ loved us, that while we were still sinners, he died for us. That is what is at risk. I'm missing a note and a uh, reference. But uh, there is, I want to say it's Romans, um, in which it says that you should give to your enemy, pray for him when in need. In doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. That doesn't sound like the making of a friend. It can be. But that sounds like a deeply serious act of spiritual warfare to pray for those who you might think are your enemy. They may truly be. 
on the night before Jesus was to be betrayed and crucified, he prayed for those who would do it. Again, this is no system of convenience, of comfort. It's a system of faithful obedience. To go to before a man who was commissioned and probably enjoying that commission to seek out, destroy, to kill the followers of Jesus. And Ananias did simply what Jesus asked him to do. Do you trust, distrust the motives of those different from you? Christ says, love and come what may. You can do no wrong by loving. Jesus knew you'd love those who love you. He taught us to love those who hate you. even those who are actively abusing you as well. That love runs the full spectrum of affection, from hate to physical violence towards you, from love to physical violence towards you. You can do no wrong by sharing the love of Jesus with all around, all around you. However, by withholding love, you can indeed fail to live up to Christ's desire for you as part of the body of the church. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few will find it. Would you please stand? Please bow with me. Lord, we know safety and comfort in this land you've given us to live in. Yet we do not take that for granted. We thank you and honor you for it. We know few trials relative to a lot of the church throughout the world today. It is not good or bad, it just is. Oh 
Lord, you've placed some people near us that likely hate us. We pray a special blessing over them that they might find abundance in their life, fulfillment and happiness and peace. Lord, there are refugees all over the world. Some of them enter countries that may have animosity towards those people fleeing for their lives. We pray your providence for those people. Whether in the Czech Republic, or even in our community. We ask that you can reconnect these people to their families. That you may bring hope to them, that they may be reunited with their loved ones. We pray that your church is there and responsive. These people may hate Christianity and be its enemies, but you've called us to love regardless of the consequences. We've seen the power of that love to change life. We've seen the power of that love to drive Christians to the cross, to their death. May we seek to love regardless. May you prosper our enemies. For our sake, Lord, that they might find you and know that you are the source of all provision, all love, all life. But let us not count our bodies as something worth concerning over and only their immortal souls. Make us strong enough to live up to this task. May we trust in you only and not in the common sense of man. Be that enemy political, a nation's enemy, a bully in our school. You've asked us to lift them before you.
and we've done that now. We lift before you the time that is to follow here today. May it bring glory and honor to you. We thank you for the food that you've provide us, provided for us. We pray that you might guide our time together, that we might grow in love towards one another, sharing each other's burdens and walking with one another. May you continue to bless this congregation until the end of the days. We pray all this in the name of your son, Christ Jesus. Amen. You may depart in peace.